You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find out more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I am Andrew, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, and unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring. Unless, of course, you have a super low, unreasonable boredom threshold. Or you simply hate thinking too deeply about things. You know, some people are like that. But not our listeners, Andrew. They're the cognoscente. Seriously, we screen them for intelligence. It's part of the app. We have an algorithm. Now, during our podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBard.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to the podcast. Additionally, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. Today we continue our series on private national security law with a journey into the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Heard of that lately, Andrew? Hmm. Maybe? Or FARA. But you say FARA. Or FARA. FARA. Not to be confused with the Somali-Canadian band of the same name or the Italian grain favored by hipsters. Those are FARO and also FARO. To take us through the ins and outs of this national security law, guess who will be our guest today? I know. Everybody knows Amy Jeffress, a partner with the firm of Arnold and Porter. Amy, welcome. We are so happy to have you here with us. Thank you, Elisa. In addition to having the chance to spend some time with you, it's an honor to participate in this podcast. And your timing is amazing. When we settled on this subject and today's date, we're here taping on July 27th, we had no idea that Congress would be just concluding two days of hearings on the Foreign Agent Registration Act. So that gives us a lot to talk about. Wow, great. So, Amy, let me give our listeners a little background on you. Uh, You're a native Washingtonian, just like me. Um, You attended Yale Law School and, interestingly enough, the Free University in Berlin. Uh, Then you served as counsel for Attorney General Janet Reno, uh, technically, as you would say, to Deputy AG Jamie Gorelick, but they shared staff, so, yeah. But then you joined the United States Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia, where what I remember is you prosecuted a major organized crime uh, case, in particular one that lasted over a year, had 30 murders, um, a bunch of racketeering offenses, and I think uh, 
Should we give birth during that time or some crazy thing? At, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, were, there were a series of trials because there were so many defendants, and I was pregnant in the second one. But uh, uh, gave birth in the middle but didn't finish the trial. Someone else came in and took my place. And then she got pregnant. So and in any event, that's yeah. a digression. Yeah. Wow, that's, you know, you're just, I don't know when you sleep. But uh, then you went on to lead the national security section at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and you went back to Maine Justice to serve as counselor to uh, then-Attorney General Eric Holder. Um, from there, you became the Department of Justice's attache at the United States Embassy in London, uh, where you were for several years, and then Arnold and Porter was very lucky to snatch you up, but I would like to talk about one of my favorite entries in your bio. Uh, in 2016, you were named Working Mother of the Year by Working Mother Magazine. All right, did you have an in? Like, what was the trick there? I got to know. <laughs> my in is that my firm is one of the best employers uh, for Working Mother Magazine, so um, ah, I see. we tend to get that award. Well, you certainly <laughs> deserved it. Um, and I just want to say something else that I know about you. We have a lot of people on these podcasts, but um, I also want to emphasize that one of the things that really distinguishes you, I think, from a lot of people is you're very well known for your just solid ethics and decency. Um, and everybody that I have talked to has really enjoyed working with you. So um, you're just doing, like, everything right. So don't trip when you're leaving, okay? Because <laughs> that wouldn't be good. Thanks, Lisa. All right, so time for brass tacks. Uh, and let's orient our listeners to this law that authorizes the Attorney General to force agents of foreign governments to register with the United States Department of State. The Foreign Agents Registration Act, or what we're calling FERA, has a legislative history uh, showing it was enacted in 1938, uh, just prior to World War II for the younger listeners, uh, <laughs> when the U.S. government learned that Nazis in Germany had begun a propaganda campaign to try to influence people in the middle of the United States to think favorably about the Nazi party. What? A foreign government trying to influence American politics? Why, I don't think any of us have ever heard of such a thing. I am outraged. Alyssa, aren't you outraged? I'm feeling pretty outraged. Yep. All right. So, but something happened. Uh, there must have been some specific catalyst event, and Congress got interested. Why don't you tell us about that, Amy? Sure. So, Andrew, you're correct. When the statute was first enacted in 1938, it was administered by the Department of State, but that um, uh, administration was transferred years later to the Justice Department and has been at Justice for some time. The uh, FARA has actually been amended multiple times, really in response to the various concerns that Congress has had over the years with uh, influences from really different sources. Initially, though, the influence that they were uh, trying to address was the Nazi influence, the propaganda efforts by not the Nazi Germany to influence U.S. public opinion on, on the government in Germany, and then also communist propaganda around that same time. And then over the years, there have been different concerns with uh, influences from other countries. But we thought it might be interesting to just read some of the uh, language from the original House report at the time that FARA was enacted. And that says, incontrovertible evidence has been submitted to prove that there are many persons in the United States representing foreign governments or foreign political groups who are supplied by such agencies with funds and other materials to foster un-American activities and to influence the external and internal policies of this country, thereby violating both the letter and the spirit of international law. And it goes on to say, as a result of such evidence, this bill was introduced, the purpose of which is to require all persons who are in the United States for political propaganda purposes to register with the State Department and to supply information about their political propaganda activities. And here's the key language about the purpose of the act. 
so that the American people may know those who are engaged in this country by foreign agencies to spread doctrines alien to our democratic form of government or propaganda for the purpose of influencing American public opinion on a political question. So it's really about disclosure, about alerting the American people to who is operating in our country on behalf of foreign entities. And I think it might be worth noting also that at the time of this act being drafted, propaganda was not necessarily as dirty a word as it is today. The Nazi use of information to influence uh, American and European audiences and subsequent efforts by uh, Stalinist regime essentially sullied the term. And there were some efforts even here in the United States to try to turn what has now become the public relations industry into something uh, more reputable after the, the kind of sullying work that was done on the word propaganda. Really interesting point, Andrew, and that is really what FAIR is all about today, is more the public relations industry, and it's enormous. And so what FARA was designed to address was, in some ways, a, a huge problem at the time, but a much smaller problem when you look at just the plethora of lobbying organizations and public relations organizations that are active in the United States today. So it's a very different landscape that we're trying to address with a statute that really wasn't written for what it's trying to address today. All right, so it's definitely not a new topic, but let's we've talked a little bit about the Nazis. There have been other influences, and there have even been some cases that have arisen as a result of these efforts by outside forces to influence what are public opinion uh, in some instances, but politics in others. Can you run through some of those? Some of them will be familiar to people listening to the cast, but I think a lot of them have sort of been lost as, you know, dust has gone over some of these historical notes. Right. It's really interesting when you look back at the history of how the statute's been enforced. And one of the largest areas of enforcement has been to address uh, what was viewed as a problem of influence here in the United States by the Irish Republican Army and really radical forces in Ireland. So that was a big issue in the 70s. And, uh, you know, we don't really think about that as being a problem today. At one time, people were very concerned, this was more in the 40s, about the influence of, you know, in, after World War II, the influence of the Taiwan lobby, uh, of all things. Again, you don't think about that much today. And then uh, there was a big controversy back in the uh, late 70s about Billy Carter, Jimmy Carter's brother, if you remember, taking money from Libya to lobby for the Libyan oil industry. So that, that too, is back in the past, but relevant today when we think about the history of FARA and how it's being applied today. So there's a number of different people who are covered by this act, but who specifically has to register under FARA? What kind of connections, one-time only, long-standing client relationships really are covered here? And would that apply to lawyers as well? Great question, Nicole. And yes, it does apply to lawyers. And it applies to anyone engaging in political activity or public relations activity in the United States. And those terms are defined in the statute, but the definitions don't give real clear guidance. What you uh, need to do is understand what is meant, what's the purpose of the statute, what's it trying to achieve. And again, it's trying to achieve disclosure. So if you're engaged in political activity or an effort to influence U.S. policy or U.S. public opinion, then chances are you need to consider registration. And lawyers do need to register for any political activity that lawyers might perform. So my law firm, for example, um, combined last January with Kay Scholler in New York, so we're now Arnold reporter Kay Scholler. But we represent several foreign governments, and we do register on behalf of our work for them because we represent a lot of foreign governments in litigation and arbitration, but those activities don't need to be registered because they are already on the record. For example, if you represent a 
foreign government in U.S. District Court, you're already on the record, so that's already disclosed. So there's an exemption for legal work of that kind. But if we go to lobby uh, anyone on the Hill or certain members of the executive branch to try to influence U.S. policy on behalf of one of those foreign governments, we need to register, and we do. Would it also apply to other sorts of advocacy aside from what would be kind of strict letter of the law lobbying or legal work? So legal work, if you're really doing legal work, like addressing a particular legal issue that the foreign entity has, that is also exempt. There are two legal exemptions, and not to get too complicated, but one is for legal activity on the record, like I mentioned before, in court. There's also a commercial exception. So if you're trying to help someone with an acquisition or there's lots of different bond issues that foreign governments may have where they seek our advice, but that's legal work and that's not trying to influence U.S. policy. You're trying to help that foreign government or foreign entity deal with a particular legal problem. But uh, when we try to influence policy or when we go to members of the government to try to get them to change really how the U.S. is approaching a certain problem that our client's having, then we consider registering that activity. Right. And would it be inclusive of, of other types of advocacy beyond that of lawyers? So, so I'm wondering kind of, you know, you hear about people advocating for trade sanction relief or for changes in economic policy. Is that sort of thing covered by FARA as well? That is. that That's really an effort to influence uh, U.S. policy. So there's another exemption, though, that I should mention, Andrew, and this doesn't apply so much to lawyers, although in some cases it does. But uh, if you're registered under the Lobbying Disclosure Act so that you lobby Congress and that's also disclosed under the LDA, then that's an exemption for FERA, again, because that's already disclosed in some other way. So a lot of the activity that you might be talking about with that question falls under the LDA and is separately addressed. Got it. Some of our listeners may be aware that George Clooney um, wrote an op-ed criticizing one of the big D.C. law firms' work for the country of Sudan, for which I believe they may be registered. You know, and and we're I'm wondering if he brought suit or has standing. I don't know if he's brought suit or not, but you know what that whole episode shows, Andrew, is that shows really that Farah is, in some respects, working well. That law firm is registered for its activity on behalf of the Sudan, and then George Clooney has found out about it, and he thinks it's outrageous, and he writes an op-ed. That's exactly the kind of debate we need to be having in our public discourse. And so I think that's a good example of how Farah is working. It's not working in all respects. I think it probably is not uh, enforced as vigorously as it could be. People are not aware of it. There hasn't been a big sort of campaign to make people aware of the requirement, but that's a perfect example of one case in which it is working. And uh, also in in current events, um, some people may be aware that General Mike Flynn, the former National Security Advisor, registered as a foreign agent retroactively uh, on behalf of Turkey. So so does that fit in also within kind of the FARA rubric of transparency? It does. In fact, at the hearing yesterday, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General, Adam Hickey, who testified, talked about that, that they had found out about that activity and urged uh, Michael Flynn to register, and he subsequently did. Outstanding. Well, let's talk about this. So it sounds like uh, it's a great concept, you know, the idea idea that the American public having all of its facts and the sources at their hands, you know, would be trusted to make the right decision. But let's talk about the situation where there's a non-compliance with the statute. Someone doesn't register. They're out there doing this. Are there penalties? I mean, could you actually go to jail for this? There are penalties. The, case, the, the statute, though, is rarely enforced. And I think it's actually very hard to bring prosecutions under FARA. And I actually think it it should be. You know, it's a little-known statute, and most people who violate it probably don't realize that they are doing so. But now and then you'll find a case where someone 
is aware of the requirement but willfully violates it by, uh, by not registering. And what you as a prosecutor would look for in these situations would be evidence that they did know about the statute and still failed to register. So a knowing violation, you'd look for consciousness, consciousness of guilt evidence. So if someone's hiding money, if someone's concealing travel or other activities that they're conducting on behalf of the foreign entity or lying about those activities, those pieces of evidence would indicate that they know that they're doing wrong and they're doing it anyway. And so those are the cases that tend to get prosecuted. And so I wonder, there have been some successful prosecutions, or at least guilty pleas, something that resulted in an opinion. But given the duration of time that this statute has been around, it doesn't seem like it's that many. No, there aren't that many. And, and as I said, I think that it's, a, it's difficult to enforce. And the, um, it's a statute that is somewhat complicated. There are a lot of exemptions. It's difficult to understand exactly how those exemptions apply. So again, when they have evidence that there's a knowing uh, commission of a crime, they will bring a case. But generally, they try to achieve compliance with FARA by asking people who they think should be registered whether they should be registered and asking for facts and achieving voluntary compliance. So that also, the, if I could just jump in here for a second, though, that raises an interesting issue. So as private attorneys, there are times when you've really got to help your clients understand when they come to you, you might be representing them on something else, that this is suddenly an issue. Uh, does that occur? We're getting a lot more calls than we used to on this issue because of the uh, people who are in the news and the uh, the whole issue of Farrah being in the news. So I, I do expect there to be more people asking these questions. One thing I will mention is that the Department of Justice's uh, registration office that enforces the statute is very user-friendly, and they want to help people comply, again, because compliance is really enforced by voluntary compliance. So they take calls, they return calls, they return emails, they answer questions, they're open to meetings, um, and they're really very nice people. So if you have an issue that you think is thorny and you want to talk it over with them, they are open to that. They want people to get it right, and they will help you do that. I'm looking over these cases that um, you know we've talked about before we sat down to do the cast today, and one of the things that I find interesting is it looks in reviewing them, which we will definitely put in the notes to the cast for everyone, it looks like every single one of these cases had a nexus to some other ongoing criminal investigation, to your point, about this being one of those situations where, you know, it may be suddenly discovered through some sort of other interaction with the client, focusing, on, again, on the private attorney's role here. Is that what attorneys should be looking for, what they should expect, is it'll surface in, a, in other contexts? I think that's a great point. A number of the FARA prosecutions have involved violations of sanctions. So there are sanctions violations going on and violations of FARA. And those are the cases that obviously would be a priority for the Department of Justice to prosecute. We investigated one when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office where someone was registered to do work on behalf of Sudan and faced some criticism, much like George Clooney is uh, making today. And that individual withdrew his registration, but then continued the activity. And as I mentioned before, he then concealed it by uh, having the payments made to an offshore account and concealing his travel on behalf of the country. Uh, and so that was a case where we had some evidence of consciousness of guilt. And, and even that case wasn't 
prosecuted under FARA, but a related statute that addresses commercial activity and not merely political activity like FARA does. So again, it's a complicated landscape of statutes, but when there are willful violations and really sort of underlying crimes at issue, like violations of sanctions laws or money laundering or other serious violations, uh, those are the cases that get prosecuted. And let's talk for a second, because one of the things that we like to do in this cast is we like to sort of look at the future and look at technology. And, you know, this is statute would be fabulous. There's a guy out there, he's got an idea, you know, he's going to promote some country's interests. But, you know, what we're dealing with right now is the age of the Internet. You know, Facebook uh, stories can be seeded, Twitter, so on. You can't get Facebook or Twitter to register as foreign agents if they are basically vessels through which this stuff is somehow getting out to the public unattributed. So can you just, the statute, as it's written right now, it just has certain infirmities, do you see, maybe going forward? It's a great question. The statute does require, to be considered a foreign agent, you have to be operating under the direction and control of a foreign entity. And so uh, in your example, Facebook is really more of a passive recipient of all kinds of fake news and crazy stories on behalf of lots of different interests, but it's not taking money, you know, it's really not operating at the direction and control of those uh, forces that are trying to use it for their own nefarious purposes. Would that be different if it was, as opposed to a Facebook post, a Facebook paid advertisement? That's a really interesting question. So then they're really just posting on behalf of the client that's paying. I'd have to think about that. They, they may. That, that's interesting. If it's in the marketplace and available to lots of sources, then perhaps not, but they have to be very careful about who they accept uh, money from. If it's an advertising perhaps. contract to yeah. target specific Facebook users, fitting a specific profile in age and geographic residence. That kind of activity to me sounds like that would, be an, that would create an agency relationship, then they're really trying to help. They're taking money to help this entity achieve a goal. Although, let's, I mean, to your point, and I think that's a good one, all um, internet companies basically right now, everyone thinks Google's free. I mean, they're all aggregating your data. Um, They're all sending it out to targeting advertisers. It's really not free. So that would create an opportunity to target, say, specific groups of people um, and push out a message unattributed. Yeah, there does appear to me to be a little hole here, perhaps. So it seems like Mark Zuckerberg really should be calling Amy. (laughs) I think so. Mark Zuckerberg, Amy's great. I'd be happy to talk to him. And I guess my my other question, just kind of on the, the general intent of the law, if it could be boiled down in just a sentence or two. I used to be in the Marines, so it doesn't mean I need it simple, uh, but, but, it does, but it does mean that we focus a lot on kind of what's the, what's the commander's intent or what was the policymaker's intent uh, when written. And, you know, if we could boil it down in just a sentence or two that would be understandable by my grandmother, what would that sound like? This is so boring, but I will give you one word, which is disclosure. The purpose is to make the American people aware of who is operating in our democracy. So who's behind a certain ad campaign or a certain propaganda campaign? We need to know so that we know what foreign influences are trying to affect our our policies. And that's that's the purpose of the statute. So it's about attribution at the end of the day. Right. What are people up to and who are they? And yeah, so that, someone that writes an op-ed in the paper or if they have a meeting with my congressman or your congresswoman or a governor, that that public official is aware the individual uh, might be representing the interests of a foreign power or a foreign interest. That's right. And when you have a meeting, uh, it's a great uh, example, when you have a meeting on the Hill on behalf of a foreign entity, you need to tell, and this is something that, you know, again, as a lawyer, if you're doing something for a client, you need to tell the person you're meeting with that you are there to meet with them on behalf of your client so that that's disclosed. So it sounds like as a lawyer, you'd be advising kind of a culture of compliance and disclosure for the clients as opposed to saying you cannot have a meeting. 
That's right. No, this activity is not prohibited. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fine to engage on behalf of a foreign principal, but it has to be disclosed properly. So basically what could happen if the Nazis were here today, they could use data aggregation to go ahead and see stories, right? Unattributed? It could happen. It could happen, Andrew. Yeah, I, I've often wondered how um, Facebook knows that I just bought a pair of shoes from Sperry Topsider Company and offers me a discount within 24 hours of my having bought the shoes. So yes, I think I, I think that's probably <laughs> something that smart policymakers want to be thinking about. Uh, yeah, but you know, if you put it in the cart but you don't buy it and then you go back, they also make the price drop. Just saying. <laughs> All right. So let me ask you though. So we're at the private sector. Are are they starting? Do you see people talking about this more, getting used to it, perhaps coming to you with better questions? And sort of how is also separately from that, the public you know public generally the clients you deal with. What about the private bar? Are they are they starting to get more interested in this, more aware of it? What are you seeing? So if you look at who's registered under FARA, and the DOJ website is uh, searchable, so you can go into the FARA page on the DOJ website and search for a particular law firm or a particular PR firm, and a lot of them fall into those categories because law firms are sophisticated, they know what the law is, they know that they have to register, and so they're taking the appropriate steps to do so in, in the vast majority of the cases, I would hope, and PR firms as well. This is what they do. They understand the legal landscape. They get good advice, and they comply. Where you have issues is people who aren't really in this business generally, but then get a contract for work on behalf of a foreign entity, and they don't know about FARA. Somebody just decides to leave government and start up their own consulting business, and they fall into this activity without really understanding the law. That's where the problems are. And so I hope that those types of businesses and individuals will start calling lawyers to get advice and comply with the law. All right, this is a lot, very timely subject. Let's shift for just a second because I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Let's start with this first of all. These young lawyers out there today, you know, this is a, this is a tough legal market, but a lot of them are interested in this topic. And I'm sure they would like to hear what advice you've had, particularly because you've been so tremendously successful both in government and now in the private sector. I've been really lucky, Elisa. I've worked with great people. I've gotten to work on great issues. And I actually stumbled into national security law a little bit accidentally. In the post-9-11 world, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. created a national security section. And I was asked if I uh, wanted to apply to be chief of that section when the former chief, Matt Olson, left and went to the National Security Division. And I was thrilled to do it. And so I was chief of that section at a time when this area of the law was really bursting. And so a lot of people at that time who weren't previously national security experts became national security experts. And now I do a lot of recruiting for our firm and I talk to a lot of law students and there's just huge interest in this area. And what I advise them is that um, it's a fascinating area and there are a lot of jobs all across government. I do think that if you want to practice in this area, it's very, very helpful to have some government experience. But there are a lot of different agencies where you can get that experience, not just justice, but uh, in the intelligence community, in the military. Um, there are a lot of laws in this area, so all of these agencies have many lawyers. Um, Treasury is another example that you might not think of, but they have a whole terrorism financing role, and so there are lawyers there who do really important national security work. And then there are uh, opportunities all over government to work on national security issues, but you don't have to go into government right out of law school. If you want to go to a firm first, 
that's fine. And one of our very talented associates just recently left our firm to join the CIA General Counsel's Office. So that's a potential path, too. I went to government first, but there is no correct path and no one way to get into the area of national security. There are lots of options and lots of opportunities. And what I tell people to do is to apply for and take the job they really want, because that will make them happy and that will make them a better lawyer. That's great. So, so I have a quick question on that and kind of after those decades in government um, at very senior levels, what was it like to make that change into the private sector? Uh, was there a cultural shift and has you, have your own views or perspectives on the law changed uh, kind of moving seats? I have learned a lot in the private sector and it is different, but I do think that being a good lawyer is being a good lawyer no matter which side you're on. And that was certainly true when we were in court, you know, at the U.S. Attorney's offices, and, and you had great defense lawyers who had been great prosecutors, and they had just changed jobs, but were still very excellent advocates. So I think there's a similar, um, you know, if you enjoy being a lawyer, uh, if you're a lawyer for the government, and you're a good lawyer, and then you decide you're going to go into private practice and help clients comply with the government's requirements, that can be very satisfying, too. So it is a big shift, but maybe not as big as people might think. All right. Well, let's let's go back to the statute just briefly because um, you know I and I enjoy our conversation about sort of where technology is going and how it can at present time certainly conceal the source of, of messaging that's occurring. But let's talk about the statute itself right now. Is it really written in a way that will address all the changing methodologies that are undertaken by foreign governments, some of which are just advancing their own interests and some of which are you know quite hostile to the United States? Well, there are a number of problems that really FARA doesn't get to, right? Elisa, there is foreign influence on unwitting agents. So you may not even realize that whoever you're communicating with is acting on behalf of a foreign power. And that's particularly true in the internet age. And we see foreign governments really trying to manipulate our system in ways that they don't want the people who are helping them do so to understand. And FARA doesn't really address that. FARA really only addresses people who know that they're being directed and controlled by a foreign entity. So there's a big gap. Uh, and it's hard to know what sort of responsibilities a revised FARA could place on an individual if technology does again you know, prevent them from understanding who they're dealing with. What sort of due diligence you could really expect on the part of someone. Yeah, and given that Congress, of course, uh, passes bills and proposes statutes, do you think Congress is taking notice of FARA right now? And if so, do you think you, we could expect any changes to FARA in the, in the next several years? It's a good question. There is a bill out there. I think there were two hearings. A number of senators said that they want to see this problem addressed. They talked about possible legislative fixes, but they also talked about trying to get the Justice Department to enforce FARA more vigorously. I think if they want that, if they want more vigorous enforcement, they probably ought to improve the statute. And they certainly need to give the Justice Department more resources, because I think that unit is going to quickly be overwhelmed with questions about this area, and they're going to need more people to, uh, to help. This has been really great. Now, uh, for our listeners, we're going to post links to the statutes and citations to the cases that we were talking about with Amy today. Amy, just any parting thoughts on, on FARA? FARA? <laughs> on FARA. You know, I when I was asked if I would if I would take over as the firm's advisor for uh, FARA compliance, I thought it was a sleeper issue, and then all of a sudden <laughs> it's all over the news, so uh, you just never know. Um, I, I think it is a really interesting issue, and I'm happy to help anyone who has questions about how it applies in practice. 
All right, so I, there's a question that I like to pose to our guests. So let's say I'm a young lawyer living in the Mission District in San Francisco. I'm trying to make a name for myself with a national security practice, and I advise startups. So some of my clients run companies that concede media outlets with stories. Say media outlets located in the middle of the United States. Sound familiar? What should I be thinking about? What should I be worried about? And what should I be considering? You want to also add uh, sort of as icing on this, how should I deal with these clients who just love the idea and chasing the idea? A little client advice here. If you're running a media company and you're engaging with any foreign entity, foreign government, foreign corporation, or foreign individual, you probably need to register. If they're uh, using your services to put out their message, that seems to me to be registrable public relations activity. So again, we have the issues with whether they're actually just buying ad time or whether there's some more sophisticated contract of, uh, to govern the activity. So you'd need to look at the facts, but you certainly need advice before you uh, accept funds from uh, a foreign entity if you're in the media business. So you've had a really amazing career. You've taken over the Farrah practice uh, <laughs> at Arnold Porter. You're on a trajectory. I'm wondering, what do we expect to see in the future from you in, in your career? I'm very happy at Arnold Porter K. Scholler. I really like the firm. I like the work I'm doing. So I am uh, happy in private practice and staying there. So I, I hope that it continues to be as interesting as it has been over the last three years. And uh, I'll, I'll stay there for many more years. And if we want to find out more about Arnold and Porter's National Security Division, or if uh, you want to look you up, where should we go? Our website for Arnold Porter K. Scholler is uh, APKS.com, and please do. If you're interested in joining the firm, if you're a law student uh, interested in, in joining us, please look there. Uh, if you're leaving government and want to practice in the national security area and you have a lot of expertise, we sometimes hire people out of private practice, and uh, I'm an example of that. Uh, it happens now and then, and we'd be happy to talk to you. That's great, and I do want to thank all of our listeners uh, for joining us for the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, or SCOLANS, as we are sometimes known uh, by those who are in the club. And we encourage everyone to tune in again two weeks from now for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you are using to listen to us right now, and you certainly need less sun than other people to maintain a healthy amount of vitamin D, and, of course, if you get claustrophobic in a secure area, or you really do need a lot of vitamin D, so you'd rather practice private national security law. But you still want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history, a courtside seat to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws. Then join us next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at the next conference. And we have our fall conference here in Washington, D.C. in November. And remember one other thing. Listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook. It's available for purchase on our website. So from all of us here at the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, hashtag ABA NatSec for those of you on the Twitter, we'll see you <laughs> next time.
No, we won't see you next time. You'll hear our voices next time. But thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack. Thank you.